You are listening to the Campus Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Dinah Jansen. Each Wednesday at 5 p.m. on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, I welcome a new guest from Queen's University to discuss news, issues, upcoming events, initiatives, and services for the benefit of Queen's students, faculty, staff, and alumni. Thanks for tuning in to this podcast, and we hope you enjoy the episode. And good afternoon, everyone. It is now 5 o'clock here at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario. You are listening to Campus Beat. I'm your host, Dinah Jansen, and I am in studio today with Professor Tony Noble, particle astrophysics professor and director of the McDonald Institute. I'm also here with Mark Richardson, education and outreach officer for the McDonald Institute. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. So uh, tell us a little bit about yourselves and your roles at the McDonald Institute, or in its longer form, the Arthur B. McDonald Canadian Astroparticle Physics Research Institute. Well, maybe I'll start then. I'm the scientific director, we say. So the initial idea for creating the center was something I dreamed up a number of years ago, in large part because within Canada we had been extremely successful at particle astrophysics that led eventually to the Breakthrough Prize, the Nobel Prize, and so on. And we had built a fantastic facility where we had a huge infrastructure to support experiments. But what I felt was missing a little bit was the scientific effort. We put so much effort into building infrastructure and running experiments, and we needed more scientists. And in particular, we needed to bring up uh, more students and postdoctoral fellows to get involved. And so I started thinking about creating a scientific institute that would enhance our ability to deliver on the science. And I started talking to Queens about that. And then around that time, a new opportunity came up through the government, which allowed for people to apply for funding, much more than I was originally thinking. Uh, but we were able to create an institute here at Queen's, which is uh, actually the host of a Canada-wide institute, and we're supporting the science all across Canada uh, through this uh, Canada First Research Excellence Fund. And now, how about you, Mark? You are the Education and Outreach Officer. Tell us about your role. So as Tony said, uh, a big part of this is is making sure that we have the scientists in, in place to be doing the science and moving that forward. So two aspects that I really focus on is making sure that those scientists, particularly the junior scientists, have the opportunity to learn a robust um, number of, of uh, opportunities and, and, and topics um, and, and develop skills that are making them excel in this particular science. And then beyond that, I want to be able to share what they're doing and what we're achieving across Canada with the Canadian public and excite the public just that they're aware and excited about what we're doing and support what we're doing, but hopefully inspire even that younger generation to then pursue this kind of study when they go on and go into college. So I, I run those kind of programs to make sure that those people are aware of the efforts that we're doing and what exciting results that we have. And indeed, one of those efforts is Dark Matter Day, which is coming up and we'll talk about uh, in just a few short minutes. Uh, but first, Professor Noble, can you tell us uh, uh, in layman's terms in some detail about your research? Yeah, it's, it's um, extremely interesting, I find. Uh, we are attempting to understand at the very basic level what are the fundamental constituents of the universe? So what are the building blocks that make up everything that we see? So we know when we look out, we see stars, we see galaxies, we see planets, we see all kinds of structure. And for most of that, it's normal matter that the same sort of stuff as what we have on Earth, and we can define the most basic building blocks and say how it's all put together. 
But we also look out and we see things that don't make sense. There's some puzzles out there. The way the galaxies move and rotate just doesn't make complete sense. And from that, uh, from a, a variety of different evidences, you can conclude that our understanding of the basic building blocks is incomplete. There seems to be other matter out there that we've never seen on Earth, but which is affecting the dynamics of how the universe is evolving and all the structures within it. And so uh, we can also tell that there must be some of this material in our own galaxy. And so in principle, that stuff, we call it dark matter simply because it's not luminous matter that doesn't reflect light or absorb light in ways that uh, would allow us to see it much easier. So we're trying to find it on Earth by building detectors that would be sensitive to interactions of that with the detectors. Uh, but we also know that we haven't discovered it so far, not for 100 years or so, of people sort of looking at this. And that means it must interact extremely rarely. Mm -hmm. And that means you have to go to extraordinary lengths to find a way to detect it because it's going to maybe interact, you know, billions of these things are probably going through your body every second and maybe one every couple of years will interact. So how do you detect something like that? And so you have to build enormous detectors. And you can never allow yourself to be fooled by background radiation that all materials contain naturally with uh, radioactivity. You, for example, if you stood uh, two meters away from my detector, it would just light up and glow from the radioactivity from your body because you're filthy full of uh, radioactivity. <laughs> and, uh, oh. especially, especially, and suddenly I need a shower. <laughs> <laughs> well, especially if you eat bananas, for example. They're just full of potassium, and potassium is radioactive, and people glow in, 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 uh, in radioactivity. So we have to build these detectors two kilometers underground, so we're shielded by two kilometers of rock, which stop a lot of that radioactivity. And then all the materials in the detector have to be specially selected and purified to get rid of all that radioactivity. Uh, when we were building the precursor to this, the snow experiment, for example, we calculated that one thumbprint on a 10-story detector would be enough to destroy the experiment from the radioactivity left behind in the oil from that person's thumb. Really? And so the, the, the experiments are complex, they're huge, and you have to be extremely patient because the probability of interactions is very low. And so you're trying to suss out a very weak signal against these backgrounds over, over time. And that's what makes it uh, complicated. Okay. And you did mention uh, uh, the snow or snow, or at least the snow lab. Can you tell our listeners who may not be familiar with the snow lab, what is it and, and what happens there? Yeah, so it actually began with snow, as you mentioned. That was a single experiment which had a single purpose, which was to look for uh, neutrino oscillations, which you know all about because you interviewed Art McDonald on the topic. <laughs> and uh, that experiment was incredibly successful. It came to a conclusion, and but that success bred more opportunities. And so that was a single hall underground, a, a detector, as I said, the size of a 10-story building. Uh, but astroparticle physics in Canada started to really blossom. And uh, there are many more things that we're trying to understand about neutrinos, many more things like dark matter we're trying to explore. Mm -hmm. We're trying to understand the properties of supernova explosions. And it turns out all of these are best done by being in a lab deep underground. And so the original experiment, SNOW, expanded into a facility where we quadrupled in size. And we now host not a single experiment, 
but roughly a dozen experiments ongoing mm-hmm. at a time. Some of them are looking for dark matter. Some are doing neutrino physics. We have interesting things where people are doing biology experiments underground because it's an environment which has a different radioactivity than on surface, and how does that impact people who work underground, for example. All these sorts of things are, are curiosities that can be explored in a lab. So Snow Lab was created in 2005, basically, uh, to create a space to do all kinds of experiments that would benefit from having a deep underground facility with all the infrastructure there to support the science activities. And now, this may seem like a a base question, but uh, for many of us uh, non-scientists, our familiarity with dark matter is uh, generally what we might encounter when watching an episode of Star Trek. So um, I'm not sure how it actually works in the Star Trek universe, but what do we know in reality now? Can you tell us a little bit about what we know about dark matter? What is it? How it works? No. No, not still. <laughs> not really, uh, and and that's an honest answer. So we we know from the gravitational influence it has that it has to have mass, mm-hmm. but we don't know if it has the tiniest mass that you can imagine or the largest mass. If it has a very large mass, it's probably clumped into larger objects and only a few of them. If it's a very light mass, so we know something about the total mass, mm-hmm. but. If we don't know whether it's light or, or heavy, we don't know how many particles there are. We also know it doesn't produce light itself, so it doesn't participate in standard sort of chemical electromagnetic interactions that are the things that govern our daily life. Um, and so we think it's probably got an interaction a little bit like radioactivity, which has a weak interaction. It's very rare. That's why we haven't seen it. It doesn't produce light. doesn't have an electromagnetic. So we know some properties. It almost certainly not doesn't have any charge, like an electron or a proton, because otherwise it would have interactions that would allow us to see it. So we, mm-hmm. we know some fundamental things. But, uh, and we're absolutely certain it's there because we see it at all different scales of the universe. It influences so many things. Uh, in terms of the way galaxies rotate, the cosmic microwave background, shape, all of these things fit with a model that there is something there. And but, I, I wanted to add to that, like some people even go so far as to think that that means somehow it's it's a, a, a like related to the stuff that we do have. Like why isn't there even more gravity there? But even just like the other week, there was astronomers that came out and they found galaxies that didn't have any dark matter. So it's kind of neat in that it's not just everywhere. It's like sometimes you can even get places where you have none of it. And that, that even lends more weight that if you can have somewheres where there's none of it, then it must be something that can move around and it's something in its own right. Right. It's interesting that the discovery of galaxies with no dark matter was one of the biggest evidences for dark matter. Because if it was just something we got wrong in the physics, let's say we didn't really understand gravity properly, and so we got the model for gravity slightly incorrect, and the effects we were seeing were just because of the wrong physics, that would still apply to this other galaxy. But the galaxy doesn't show those properties, which means dark matter must exist, but sometimes it's absent. And that will be just the way that it's clumped since the beginning of the universe. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So on a practical level, then, uh, why is the study of dark matter important, not only for astrophysics overall, but even everyday life? Yeah, that's always a question we get, and it's always difficult to answer in, in some ways. Uh, I often point back to the interview that Thomas Edison gave when he was asked what the importance of electricity could possibly be, because no one could imagine that it would ever be connected through wires to houses and something. And mm-hmm. he said, well, I have no idea, but I'm sure that one day you'll tax it. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> which was certainly true. But, you know, for most of us, it's, it's a curiosity. Uh, we want to understand how the universe works. We know that our model currently doesn't work. There's something out there, and we'd really like to know what it is. And yet, at the same time, the way we do that is we build these fantastic detectors, which are very complex, which requires developing new technologies that are at the cutting edge uh, of science. And so I, I give you one example uh, that's fairly recent, which was that um, in order to see the feeble amounts of light left behind by some neutrinos or dark matter interactions that are expected, you have to develop incredibly sensitive light detectors. Well, it turns out that a new breed of light detectors was developed, and these are now being used in positron emission tomography, which are the PET scanners that they use in the hospitals. Mm -hmm. What they do in a PET scan is they fill you with radioactivity, and then they look to see where that radioactivity goes, where it gets taken up in the brain, and so it can tell what uh, sites are active in the brain and so on. But you have to put the radioactivity in. And it was quite dangerous, for example, to overdose children. Mm -hmm. But if you have a much more sensitive detector, then you can reduce the dose enormously. And now you can actually diagnose children using the PET scanning. And at least that's where the, the direction that this field is going. Okay. So that has nothing to do with dark matter. But by developing the technologies that you need to reach further and further in sensitivity, it has spin-offs in other areas. And so the moment at the moment, that's where the benefit for the public is, is okay. that we're pushing the science ahead, we're pushing technology ahead, and that has spin-offs that other people run with and say, wow, this is neat, we're going to do that, we're going to you know, take it this way or that way. But, you know, um, I gave a talk a while ago in India, and the opening was made by this man who is a giant of a man, and he just sternly looked out over the podium until he got everybody to be completely quiet. And then he started reciting, twinkle, twinkle, little star. And it was just <laughs> so surreal. But he was right. You know, everybody, since the time they were children, look up at the sky, and they're just bewildered and, and awestruck, frankly, because we're trying to understand our place in the universe. And we're making progress on yeah. understanding that place. And so it's fundamentally important to people's curiosity, to advancing the science, and it has benefits in the way that developing technology can then push other areas for improvement. Now, we did talk a little bit before our show began today about uh, um, when uh, before you started your careers and what you might want to do when you grow up kind of thing. Uh, what inspired you to... Uh, get into your field in the first place. And how about you too, Mark? Uh, well, personally, I was always inspired by Star Trek. I, I think there was an episode where they had a dark matter asteroid, which is not at all what dark matter would do in real life, but that was kind of interesting. And so I wanted to be an astronaut. I, I grew up going camping with the, the cubs, and every night, you know, we're really lucky here in Canada that we can just look up and actually see the stars on like a lot of places in the world and much more urban areas. Um, and so that, that star, that half my universe was the sky above, and so I always dreamed of going there and exploring exploring it and one day maybe traveling among the galaxies but you know you grow up and you find out that maybe that's not exactly feasible but that that the desire to explore the unknown and, and understand these kind of the whole universe um, that never left me and so I went on and became an astrophysicist and I did research in astrophysics and, and now I have the opportunity to try to use what I've learned and the people around me that are doing really exciting research in this um, and share those kind of cool results with everybody and so I love it. Awesome. Well, also continuing a little bit your research. Yes, I still get to do some research, and that's great. <laughs> <laughs> and how about you? 
for me, I think it was a particular professor that I had when I was in third year. Um, I'm quite a bit older than Mark, and so at the time, we knew almost nothing about particle physics. And every day, the professor would run in and say, they've discovered a new particle. It's, uh, you know, the ETA or something. And we'd all scramble around trying to figure out what it was. And there was no overriding theory that explained what all those different particles were and why we had so many. And it was very much like if you started with Mendelssohn's periodic table that every kid knows nowadays, mm -hmm. the chemical uh, uh, table. And you had no idea why there was order or structure in that table. And so the periodic table of particles is much bigger, uh, but there was structure, but the structure wasn't known. And people were building tools to explore and try and figure out what are the patterns, why are these particles this way and the other ones a different way. Mm -hmm. And it was just a fascinating um, detective problem. And I had an opportunity. Well, th first of all, that, that course was taught by a mathematician. So he focused really on the beauty of the mathematical model that was underlying all this. And then within Canada, we had one of the uh, accelerators uh, that was uh, exploring in this area. So I thought, okay, I can go out to Vancouver. I can be in the mountains, I can be in the ocean, and I can be studying particle physics in an area that is just exploding with knowledge where people know nothing, and I can be a part of that. And it, to me, it was just a, a no-brainer. <laughs> wow. Okay, thank you both for that. Now, we need to move on because one of the reasons why both of you have uh, joined us today, not only to uh, tell us about Dark Matter, but also to talk about Dark Matter Day, which is soon coming here at Queen's University, and I understand around the world, too. What is Dark Matter Day? So Dark Matter Day is an initiative that started uh, two years ago. It was based out of England, but it was this kind of international effort to spread the word to the world about the mysteries and possible future of dark matter. So they, they sought out to, uh, to hold this big event on Halloween in 2017, where different locations around the world could kind of celebrate the mystery and the endeavors concerning dark matter. And so we held an event then, and every year this Dark Matter Day comes back around. It's always on Halloween, and we continue to engage with that and use it as an opportunity to talk about a lot of the research that we're doing here in the McDonald Institute. And with this year's Dark Matter Day, uh, it's not happening on Halloween, though. When is it happening? Where is it happening? What's happening? Right. So... Uh... With Dark Matter Day, it's really now kind of being known as a Dark Matter Month or a Dark Matter Period. And there's a number of activities that have been, ha activities that have been happening throughout October. Um, we've had a few different night events where we had focused speakers, but we're really embracing the Dark Matter Day on November 9th. It is the Saturday, the second Saturday in November. It is the same night that we typically have our observatory open house. And we are um, teaming up with the observatory to feature kind of a collection of things and activities focused on dark matter and beyond um, here at, at Queen's. And it's actually going to focus on, um, or feature, sorry, um, Dr. Tony Noble will be giving a talk to start off the event, but there'll be lots of events happening afterwards. Um, Tony, what is your talk titled? I've forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> I understand you're going to be giving a talk on detecting dark yeah, matter. So I, that's right. And, and our detector is peculiar in the sense that uh, we can actually use sound to detect the presence of dark matter interacting and and so I had something about uh, into the darkness the sound of silence or something like that sort of bringing out the fact that there's darkness that uh, dark matter that we're looking for but that uh, so far we haven't found it so it's been very silent our detector mm -hmm. 
Um, Sounds almost to, like a little like echolocation or something. Well, what happens is um, we have a fluid which is superheated. And that means that it's well, it's like if you had water that was at 140 degrees. It should have boiled. Yeah. But it hasn't boiled because it needs something, a little bit of energy to trigger it, to make that boiling start. Mm. And that's what our fluid does. It waits. And if a dark matter particle deposited just a tiny amount of energy inside, it would initiate that boiling. And when that boiling starts, it actually makes a pop sound as a bubble, first bubble is created. And we can hear that and uh, see it and record lots of things. So that's uh, the way the detector works. And that's why I, I refer and to it as And you've seen sound. this happen? Well, we can see it happen all the time using uh, proxies for dark matter, shooting neutrons into the detector, for example. It works okay. perfectly. Um, and if you have any background radioactivity, that's a problem. It produces fake signals, so we have to uh, distinguish them from real signals. But So it definitely works as a detector for these tiny amounts of energy. Mm -hmm. Whether or not the particles we are seeing is dark matter is, is where the real analysis uh, begins. Well, I wanted to add... Uh, that uh, you know, if people are feeling dark matter is some esoteric and rare thing, it's worth pointing out that 85% of all of the mass in the universe is actually made of dark matter. So it's the dominant form by far. And so, uh, you know, we're the weird stuff. In. We're the weird. <laughs> we're, we're the weird stuff. In fact, if we try and account for the entire budget of the universe in terms of both where the energy is and where the dark matter is, we can account for about 5% of the universe, which is rather embarrassing for an astroparticle physicist to admit. That we, <laughs> we know so little about the, the universe. But uh, that just keeps you motivated to continue with the discoveries and f uh, finding new tools to make those discoveries. Mm -hmm. That's right. So uh, tell us a little bit more, indeed, about uh, Dark Matter Day. What can folks expect to experience and encounter? So that night, we will be starting at 7.30. Um, we encourage uh, anybody that has a costume still um, from Halloween to feel free and wear it, and maybe that will get you a little something. We might have some candy and prizes available. We will be having a number of displays featured after the talk. There will be tours going up to the observatory. The Royal Astronomical Society of Canada will be here with their own telescopes, and they'll be showing some of the different features that are up in the sky right now. Um, we will actually showcase uh, a demonstration of one of the detectors that is going down in Snow Lab in a, a few months, I believe. Um, so we have a, a bit of an interactive display that works with that. We also have the McDonald Institute Visitor Center, a real location where you can come in and kind of learn more of the background and interesting details that kind of feed into all of these experiments. So we have a cloud chamber, one of the earliest examples of a particle detector. You can actually come see radioactive gas interacting and you see the particles themselves. Um, and then we have showcases of other detectors that have been used. So, and on top of that, we have a grav box, a virtual reality um, interaction display that people can go and explore space. And we'll have a number of um, also photo displays coming from the Triumph, um, the Vancouver uh, particle accelerator that Tony mentioned. Um, we will have photos from uh, that lab on display from their recent global physics photo walk. Um, so there's going to be lots of different things to do, um, and I, I hope that people come out and engage with that. And most importantly, I think we will have a lot of students who are going to be there and are available to chat to the public and answer questions and so on. So, mm -hmm. All right. And now where can people get more information about the event, get tickets? So it's uh, there are no tickets. Feel free to just come. Um, we uh, can accommodate 
several hundred people, so it'll be at Sterling Hall. More information is on our website at mcdonaldinstitute.ca slash events slash dark matter day, D-M-D-A-Y. Um, and more information there is about the event, um, it's just to make sure that you know when to be where. Okay, and as a final thought uh, to maybe chat with folks, especially younger folks that uh, are thinking about going to university or are in university, why should they study astroparticle physics? Well, again, it goes down to, uh, well, first of all, all people should study things that they find inspiring. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think it's a lot of people find understanding how the universe works a real satisfying pursuit. Uh, you get to, well, as far as I'm concerned, I don't know if you remember the old Meccano sets uh, when you were kids. You built stuff out of uh, these uh, kits and so on. I mean, you're building detectors deep underground. It's um, more fun than it is work, frankly. And, uh, you know, you're talking with it's the huge international collaborations. So you're working with people all across the world on these experiments. Um, you're hands-on building things. It's really quite artistic in, in that way. Um, of course, there are mathematical theories that uh, you get involved with, with trying to understand the, the puzzle of the universe and how it all comes together. So to me, I find it incredibly inspiring to be, to be part of this and to be active in it. And to think, you know, I, I, when I was a kid, I used to think, oh, you know, Nobel Prize people over there, wow, they're smart. And, and in fact, I'm proof that you don't have to be <laughs> smart or a Nobel Prize winner, that you can actually get involved. Uh, if you're passionate about the, the topic, um, you can be a participant in some of the most important science that's happening in the world, just through your enthusiasm. How about you, Mark? Yeah, so this is getting at the heart of the, the fundamental nature of the universe. And I think, you know, we all have some curiosity in this, and if, if you know, understanding like where did we come from, where, why, why is, why are things the way they are? Um, if that is something that already kind of interests you, then there's no, there's no deeper down the rabbit hole to go than than to pursue particle astrophysics. It's the, it's like the bottom, it's the bedrock of everything that makes up the universe. Um, and in that, in that ride, in that, that quest for exploration, there are so many different ways that you can engage with that, that kind of quest for knowledge. From working with detectors and developing new technologies, knowing, for example, that you're working with technologies that's going to help people in hospitals. Um, but at the same time, you're, you're looking at, you know, maybe interactions and, and results that not a single other person in the world has seen. It's possible that you're going to see stuff and, you know, you know, what, what does that mean? You, you know, it's, it's just very inspiring and, and you get to be there and be part of that kind of journey and of, of discovery. Um, and I, I think maybe going back to my point about the, the, the sheer diversity of the ways that you can interact with this between the mathematical models, um, talking to people that are looking at these detectors, building the detectors themselves, developing new software for processing this to tell, to tell the difference between dark matter and radioactive backgrounds. It's just like such a diverse way to interact with that that I think, you know, as long as you have that kind of underlying interest and in just understanding why and what is everything, um, you're going to find a home for you. And so I think it's a very rewarding place to be. The other thing I could add is that uh, on the snow experiment, we tracked 200 PhD students that went through our program. 
and only about a quarter of them ended up in academia. And you might you know, think that's a bit surprising, but in fact, what these students learned were critical thinking skills. They learned new technologies, and they are out there now with their own companies pushing new technologies. They're in artificial intelligence. They're in finance. They're all over the map, but not because they learned astroparticle physics, but because they learned critical thinking skills and new technologies. And I think uh, in today's age, we need to be creating students who can actually be advancing new technologies. Well, thank you very much, both of you, uh, Professor Tony Noble, Particle Astrophysics, and a director of the Arthur B. Scientific Director of the Arthur B. Macdonald Canadian Astroparticle Physics <laughs> Research Institute, or for short, the Macdonald Institute. Right. And also Mark Richardson, the Education and Outreach Officer for the Macdonald Institute. Thank you both so much for uh, giving us a crash course, so to speak, in dark matter and detecting dark matter and also telling uh, our listeners today about Dark Matter Day happening again on November 9th at Sterling Hall, 730 and uh, we'll take questions there. From <laughs> <laughs> so everybody out there listening right now, come armed with questions and uh, come ready for a really fascinating evening. Thank you both very much for coming. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. 